We're going to start in Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, and read through chapter 6, verse 21. Joshua 5, 13. And it came to pass when Joshua was by Jericho that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But as captain of the host of the Lord, I am now come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. Now Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho and the king thereof and the mighty men of valor. And you shall compass the city, all ye men of war, and go around about the city once. Thus shalt thou do six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns. And the seventh day you shall compass the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it shall come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And Joshua the son of Nun called the priest and said unto them, Take up the ark of the covenant, and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said unto the people, Pass on, and compass the city, and let him that is armed pass on before the ark of the Lord. And it came to pass when Joshua had spoken unto the people that the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns passed on before the Lord and blew with the trumpets and the ark of the covenant of the Lord followed them. And the armed men went before the priest that blew with the trumpets and the rear reward came after the ark, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice, neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, and then you shall shout. And so the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about it once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them, but the rear reward came after the ark of the Lord, the priest going on and blowing with the trumpets. And the second day they compassed the city once and returned into the camp, and so they did six days. And it came to pass on the seventh day that they rose early about the dawning of the day and compassed the city after the same manner seven times. Only on that day they compassed the city seven times. And it came to pass the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city, and the city shall be accursed, even it and all that are therein to the Lord. Only Rahab the harlot shall live, she and all that are with her in her house, because she hid the messengers that we sent. And ye in any wise keep yourselves from the accursed thing, lest ye make yourselves accursed. When you take of the accursed thing and make the camp of Israel accursed and trouble it, but all the silver and gold and vessels of brass and iron are consecrated unto the Lord, and they shall come into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted when the priests blew with the trumpets, and it came to pass when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, and the people shouted with a great shout that the wall fell down flat, so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they took the city, and they utterly destroyed all that was in the city, both man and woman, young and old, and ox and sheep and ass with the edge of the sword. So, Joshua and Israel, they've made it over the Jordan River, is what's happening at the beginning of this. We talked about this two weeks ago. It was no small thing, no small feat what they did, because the Jordan River was at its flood stage, and it was raging. It was overflowing its banks. And God said, look, this is an unfamiliar path here. I'm going to take you somewhere you've never gone before. And God supernaturally cut a path through the Jordan River for them to cross over when there seemed to be no way. He made a way, didn't he? And so the priest, what he had him do is carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord a half a mile ahead of everybody else. And it said as soon as their feet touched the water, that the water 20 miles upstream 
became heaps and just stood there supernaturally. Supernaturally, 20 miles upstream, all two million of the Jews crossed over, the Bible says, on dry land. And after they did that, Joshua commanded the priests that bear the Ark of the Covenant. He says, you come up out of the Jordan River. And as soon as they did that, the Bible says the waters returned right back to their place, right back to overflowing, raging, flooding river. For Israel, there's no going back now. They are locked in, aren't they? They're locked in there. So what does the crossing of the Jordan represent? What does that represent? So many of the hymns we have suggest death, and they'll say Canaan land is heaven. But we don't get our theology from hymnology, do we? Because that's not what it's talking about, because there isn't going to be any fighting and struggles in heaven, is there? I sure hope not. That's not what the Word says. That's nothing to be looking forward to, right? That's going to be all over. There's not going to be any more tears there. So Canaan can't be heaven. Because there's struggles over in Canaan. And what about the Jordan River? I believe the Jordan River represents Israel and our consecration to God. Our commitment to be conformed to the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we all know that that is not going to happen easily and without struggles, is it? That's a big struggle right there. So when Israel crossed the Jordan, like I said, it began to flow again just like it did before. And they were cut off from retreat. There was no going back, was there? So that's when the song comes in for us. I have decided to follow Jesus. There's no going back. And that's where they were on the other side of that Jordan River. They're either going to do one of two things. They're either going to move forward and fight. And if they don't do that, they're going to just get slaughtered. So they really don't have a choice. They're going to have to move forward and fight. And they were committed to conquer Canaan. At that point, they were. So Jericho lay in front of them, though. That's one of their first huge obstacles that they're going to have to overcome, to overcome the land, to conquer the land. And it wasn't going to be the only battle, though. That's the thing, right? Jericho was a big fortress sitting in front of them, but it wasn't going to be the only battle, wasn't going to be the only city to conquer, because there was going to be warfare all the days of Joshua. And that's the way it is for us. The cross before me, the song goes on to say, the world behind me. But the cross is before us. Daily we have to pick up that cross. So as one man said, the Christian life is not an isolated battle, is it? It's not just I conquered Jericho years back and that's it. It's not an isolated battle, but the Christian life is a sustained campaign. It takes all of our life. And so one victory is not the end of the war. And one defeat is not the end of the warrior. One victory is not the end of the war. And one defeat is not the end of the warrior. Because each victory we have, it just prepares us and gets us ready for the next victory, doesn't it? It just encourages us, lets us know that God is faithful to us and that we can conquer. And we have defeats. All of us have had defeats. But they're to learn from. They're not to make us quit. So we may be chastised by the Lord. But all that means is we should be just that much wiser the next time. That's all he's trying to do. It's just like with your children. You chastise them so they learn. You use the old pain-pleasure principle. The pain you get from doing what you shouldn't have done is not worth the pleasure you're going to have from not doing it. The pain-pleasure principle. I had a guy tell me that years back, and it works. So God may chastise you, but you just learn from that. You repent, and you move on. Because we'll see, that's what Israel had to do. One defeat at Ai didn't mean it was all over, did it? Just like the one victory at Jericho didn't mean it was all over. We're not going to look at this today, but you know we ended at chapter 3. And there's three things that happened in chapter 4 and most of chapter 5 that we aren't going to look at necessarily. I just want to talk about it. Three things that happened. And one of them was the memorial stones they took from the river. They built a memorial with 12 stones that they took from the river. And the second one was all of the males had to be circumcised because nobody was circumcised that was born out in the wilderness, not a single person. And all the ones that had had died off except for Joshua and Caleb. And the other thing they did was they celebrated the Passover. And when they did that, it says that the manna ceased and they went on to live from the land. So like I said, I'm not going to preach on those three things, but I just want to give a brief summary of their significance. So those memorial stones, those 12 stones that they stacked up at Gilgal that they took out of the Jordan River when they crossed it, it's visible reminder 
of two things. And the first thing is of God's utter faithfulness, of his presence, of his power, of his majesty that held back the waters while his chosen people walked across. It's a memorial to that. But it also is a memorial to the fact that Israel, the people, all of the people were faithful at that time, weren't they? They crossed by faith. They were obedient. They had hearts that were right by God. And so that is another thing. Their children see that and their children's children and they'll see, hey, my parents were faithful. This memorial was set up because they were and God performed a miracle. And that's where, hey, we should be telling our children about the things God has done. He healed you here. He did this for our family. Tell them about those things that happened where you saw God's faithfulness in times past. And say, hey, when we were walking with the Lord, and when we walk with the Lord, everything works. And maybe there's times we missed it and things didn't work. But when we're right, God's promises always work, don't they? They do. God is faithful, and I'll stand on that forever. That's the truth. Because if that's not true, we're sunk. We are. We may as well throw our Bibles away. And then those males that were circumcised, like I said, all the circumcised males in the wilderness had died. They were under God's judgment wandering aimlessly for 40 years. And so the Egyptians saw that. They're like, well, you got out of our country, but you all haven't gotten anywhere. You're just wandering aimlessly. And they probably mocked the Jews and they probably mocked their God. Like their God brought you out of our land, but he can't bring you anywhere. He's just leaving you wandering in the wilderness. And so look what God said in chapter 5, verse 9. It says, and the Lord said unto Joshua, this is after all the males have been circumcised. He says, this day have I rolled away the reproach of Egypt from off you, is what he says there. He rolled away the reproach of Egypt because he had brought all of Israel back into covenant relationship. That's what that circumcision stood for. They were committed. They had committed themselves through that circumcision to wholly follow the Lord. It's a sign of what should have happened in their heart. Their heart was committed to wholly follow the Lord. And so they're doing that on this other side. They're saying, we are God's covenant people. And they had shown that they were wholly committed. And isn't there times that God brings you to that point where you realize, man, I just have not been keeping the commitment I made when I first came to you, Lord. And in a sense, you circumcise yourself again. Recommit yourself to the Lord. And I'm committed to take this land that you've given me. Possess my possessions, so to speak. And that's what he did. And, you know, the amazing thing is, as an aside, when those people were circumcised, you think every fighting male. So remember what happened back in Genesis when the sons of Jacob tricked those men and had them circumcised? They went in there and slaughtered every one of them. And you think about it. Israel, every single man that could fight was laid up for days recovering from being circumcised. They could have been a prey to anybody. God had to supernaturally watch over them, didn't he? And he did. He had put the fear of them into these people didn't want to mess with them after hearing about them crossing the Jordan River. And that kind of goes along with the last thing they observed, the Passover in the new land. And so Passover represents what? Salvation by the blood of the Lamb. Perpetual feast for Israel. They say the Lord told them don't ever quit celebrating a Passover. It goes on forever. And so no matter how great you become, no matter where you're at, Israel, you need to remember that day back then when that blood is what brought your deliverance. And that holds true for us, doesn't it? Because no matter how deep we think we are spiritually, no matter how much spiritual progress we think we've made, how long we've been in Christianity, it all comes back to our only plea. Our only plea of righteousness is what? It's the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. It will be. I mean, when we stand before the throne... That had better be our plea, because we're not going to be presenting our righteousness, but his blood, Jesus' blood and righteousness. As the song says, this is all my righteousness, nothing but the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. I mean, that's how we still come before the Lord in prayer. We're not worthy, ever worthy in and of ourselves. It's always because of that blood that's over us. Amen. It is. So that brings us to what I want to say here about the taking of Jericho. And there's three principles, great principles, that we're going to learn from this account. The first one we're going to look at is, is that the Lord is our captain. The second thing we're going to look at is the Lord gives us direction. And the third thing is that the Lord gives victory. 
And he does. So first we're going to look at the Lord is our captain. And that's back in chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. And it came to pass, we'll read it again, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, there stood a man over against him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went unto him and said unto him, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And the captain of the Lord's host said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place wherein thou standest is holy. And Joshua did so. And so Joshua learns a lesson here outside of Jericho. It said he was by Jericho that is going to serve him all the rest of his days. And I'm saying if we can learn the same lesson, these are universal truths for all time that we're being taught here in this book. And if we can learn the same lesson, it will save us a lifetime of frustration and defeat. So you read this story, Joshua, it says he's by Jericho. He's apparently out scouting Jericho to figure out what they're going to do, how they're going to overthrow this massive fortress. And that's what it was. He's got to be looking down. He might have been kicking rocks, thinking, man, you know, what are we going to do here with this? That's what it says. He was looking down because he has to lift up his eyes, lifts up his eyes and looks, and behold, when he does, he looks up, and there in front of him is this man standing with the sword drawn in his hand. That's what he's facing. It's suddenly there, an armed man standing in front of him. Now, Joshua had to be a little ways off. The Lord told Joshua, you be bold and courageous. And he was because Joshua didn't take off running the other way, did he? It says he approached that man. He walks up to that man and he says to him a question, straightforward question. Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Are you a friend or are you a foe, as they say in military terms? And so the man, we don't know who it is exactly at that point of the story. He gives an answer, though, you wouldn't expect, doesn't he? You'd expect him to say, well, I'm on your side, of course. You know, God sent me to help you. That's what you would expect him to say. But instead, he says, no. Or if you've got an NIV translation, he says, neither. So he's saying, I haven't come, Joshua. What he's telling him is, I haven't come to be your helper or your co-pilot. He's telling him, you don't understand. The issue isn't whether I'm on your side Joshua, or whether I'm on the enemy's side, but the issue is whether you are on my side. That's the issue. Look what verse 14 says there. And he said, nay, but as captain of the host of the Lord am I now come. He's saying, I didn't come here to serve under you, Joshua. I'm the one that's leading the charge. I am the captain of the Lord's army. That's the visible and invisible, the host. And he's saying, will you join me? And Joshua's asking him, whose side are you on? He said, no, no, I'm not on either one. You come join me, Joshua. That's the way this is going to work. And that is the great principle that we all need to learn. Will we let God be God in our lives? That's the question that's being asked here. Because how many times and in how many ways do we have plans? Do we make decisions? Do we construct our timetable on how things are going to work out and then ask God to help us? How many times do we do that? Ask God to fit into our purposes. You know, we're looking back at the Lord as we go ahead with our plans and we ask him and we say, Lord, come follow me. And he's like, wait a minute, you got it backwards. I'm the sovereign Lord. I'm the one that's the Lord. Your plan needs to be put on the shelf. You follow me. I am the captain of your salvation. That's what Jesus is called in the New Testament. We're following him, aren't we? He's the captain of our salvation. And look, Joshua got the message pretty quick. Because you look back at verse 14, and it says, And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and did worship and said unto him, What saith my Lord unto his servant? And Joshua realized that he was in the presence of the pre-incarnate Christ. And he realized then who was the Lord and who was the servant, who was the captain and who was the private. He learned that lesson quick and he let God be God. What saith my Lord was the next thing he said. So it's real similar 
to what happened to Paul when he was on his way to Damascus. You know, Paul had his plans. He had his ideas. He's going to be the one engaging God's war, or so he thought, and God would help him with that. And the Lord Jesus Christ meets him on the road, doesn't he? Bright light shines, knocks him off his horse, and he is right down in the dust in his face, just like Joshua is here. And what Paul said then is almost identical to what Joshua said. Paul says, when he's down in the dust, and he realizes the glory of God just knocked him off a horse. What's the first thing he says? It's the first thing a Christian will say and continue to say, Lord, what will thou have me to do? And Paul's plans were changed, weren't they? Just like Joshua. And the captain of the Lord, host Jesus Christ, had other plans for Paul. Now you're through destroying my church, Paul, because now I'm going to make you, you are a chosen vessel. And you're going to be taking the gospel as a missionary to the Gentiles. That wasn't in Paul's plans. Paul got his directions in from the Lord, and that's exactly what we need to do. We need to get our plans from God. We need to get our directions from God. We need to get everything we do from the Lord. That's the principle. You know, Bevington, those of you that have read the book, Bevington book, if you haven't, I would recommend that you do. It's a great book in a lot of ways. It explains faith, prayer, pressing in for answers to prayer. But Bevington was constantly, he never had plans on what he was going to do next. He would go and get before the Lord and get quiet. And he'd always talked about going to headquarters to get his directions from headquarters. Didn't he always do that? He'd wait on the Lord. Wait on the Lord to speak to him and tell him what his next move was. And a lot of times he'd have him do off-the-wall things, wouldn't he? Off-the-wall things and how he's act his face, off-the-wall things as far as where he would go preach, where the door seemed to be shut, but he'd wait on the Lord and let the Lord open the door because the Lord's the one, he's in his plans, following what he wants him to do. And that's the way it should be for us as Christians. But another thing we see here, I think, in these last few verses in chapter 5, God has given him, on the other hand, a gracious reassurance. Because what's happening here, the responsibility of success is taken off of Joshua's shoulders, isn't it? And who takes on the responsibility now, saying, I'm the leader. You just need to follow and obey me. Think about if you're in a trial, you can feel that heavy responsibility or praying for somebody. And the captain is saying, no, the responsibility now is on me, Joshua. It's not a matter of I'm coming to help you. No, the responsibility is on me. I'm taking the burden. All you need to do is obey. Just stay humble before me. Isn't that what he did? He's in the dust. What will you have me to do? That's the position. If we'll stay in that position, we'll be safe. First Peter says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him. Why? For he cares for you. And that's what Joshua is said to do. God's telling him, the Lord, the captain, just put your care under my hand. Humble yourself under my mighty hand because I care for you and the people. I've got their interest. I'll bring you in the land. I'll do what I said. I won't forsake you. Never will leave you or forsake you. And he goes on at the end of there in verse 15. He received the same assurance Moses did when that the Almighty was speaking to him. This wasn't just anybody. And the captain of the Lord's host, verse 15, said unto Joshua, Loose thy shoe from off thy foot, for the place whereon thou standest is holy. And that's what happened to Moses when God appeared to him at the burning bush, told him to take off his sandals. He said, I am the great I am, and gave him the assurance that he would never leave him. He would always be there. And Joshua was told to take off his sandals in the presence of the same God. The Lord Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Christ, the supreme commander of God's army. Who's the one that is going to go before him? We sang that song today. We could go into Canaan lands because Jesus is in front of us, not behind us. He's leading the way, making a way for us. So think of it. He submitted himself. Joshua is now taking orders from the commander, the Lord of a vast, invisible army. And he knows from here on out, he is not going to be fighting alone. He knows that from here on out. This has got to be the most important day of his life. He's going to go forth conquering all these cities, taking, was it 31 kings? Towering walls, towering people. But he knows it's not a matter of him. It's not up to him. 
that the Lord, the captain, is there with his invisible host going in front of him. God's angelic host, they'll be fighting his battles. Great comfort, and that should be great comfort to us. It's just like what happened with Elisha. Remember his servant? They're surrounded by the king of Syria. They're going to take him because they know he's given inside information, and <laughs> they're having problems, and the king of Syria is go get him and kill him, bring him back so we can kill him. Gehazi looks up and he's like, alas, my master, what are we going to do? These Syrian troops are surrounding us. There's no way we're going to escape. We're as good as dead. And Elisha's answer was what? Fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. And Elisha said a prayer. He couldn't see any of them. It was just words. And Elisha said a prayer and said, Lord, I pray thee open his eyes that he may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire round about. And that's what Joshua's got, the same confirmation. This is the way it's going to be for you, whether you see him or not. I'm the captain of the Lord's host. I'm the one that's going to be fighting these battles. And there's an invisible power here that you never could imagine. Unlimited sources. And we tend to can't see past our nose because that's the way we are. But in the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, it says this of angels. Hebrews 1, are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? Now, I mean, people got into all that weird stuff of commanding angels. I don't see it doing that in the Bible. But I think God will send angels. I think he does when we're driving to keep us from these accidents so we see there's no way they can happen. Like Rob was telling me Saturday, but it didn't happen. Somehow we stopped when we couldn't have stopped. You got your eyes shut in the blood of Jesus and open them up. Praise God. I'm looking at this guy's license plate instead of up in his front seat. Praise the Lord. But remember, next time you're oppressed, Dylan is like, where is the help? Just remember that there's a vast host of angels that God will send and can defeat any of these powers of darkness that are oppressing us in any way, whether it's physically, spiritually, mentally, in any way. He'll send them forth. Psalm 34, the angel of the Lord encamps all around those who fear him and delivers him. That's what God will do. Amen. And the second thing we want to look at here is the Lord gives directions. And in chapter 6, beginning in verse 3, he tells them, he says, You shall come past the city, all you men of war, and go round about the city once. You shall do it six days. And seven priests shall bear before the ark seven trumpets of ram's horns, and the seventh day you shall come past the city seven times, and the priests shall blow with the trumpets. And it'll come to pass that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city shall fall down flat, and the people shall ascend up every man straight before him. And so the directions that the Lord gives Joshua would be crazy to any military, any trained military commander. And we have this verse 1 in chapter 6. That's there to just tell us this situation is utterly impossible. It says Jericho was straightly shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out, none went in. They were not going to open their gates at all. They were strictly barred and bolted. And Jericho... So there's places you can get online. Answers in Genesis has a good picture that you can see that they've unearthed Jericho. They know about how big it was. It wasn't just a single wall. It had a wall that had a base, and it went up 41 feet high. And then there was a rampart that went like that, and another wall here, there's another 26 to 30 feet high. And that's what they're looking at. And you see, they got these little people down here, these little Jewish people, they're little to begin with. And they're looking up at that. It's impossible, literally. Utterly impossible that they're going to do anything about that. So Jericho wasn't a huge city, 320 acres, and it would take about an hour. They estimated it would take them about an hour to march around, all the way around that thing, take an hour to march around it. You're looking up at that. That's why Joshua's out there kicking pebbles, trying to figure out, how, what am I going to do? I'm not afraid of this, but I just have no idea what to do. I don't have battering rams. I don't have anything to climb up on those walls and to do what's called a siege where you just starve them out. That could have taken months or years because in Jericho, they had a spring of water in there. They had an unlimited amount of water and they had 
grain coming out their ears. Because when they uncovered this, when they've excavated this, they found Jericho with all the walls down except for one little section. And whose section do you think that might have been? Rahab. Thank you. Rahab, that's right. And it says they put fire to everything. Well, they found everything's burnt. The top part of the grain was burnt, but underneath they were stuffed with grain, which tells them a siege never took place. This all happened quickly. It's been unearthed. But that doesn't help Joshua out. What's he going to do? He says, I'll do whatever you ask. That's what he said. What saith the Lord unto thy servant? I'll do whatever you say, Lord. I'm in the ground before you. Just tell me what to do and I'll do it. And God's directions were clear, weren't they? They were clear, but weird or strange, however you want to say it. Just do what I say and I guarantee you victory. That's the way God is, isn't it? Look in verse 2. And the Lord said unto Joshua, see, look, I have given into thy hand Jericho. Nothing had happened yet, had it? Nothing had happened, but he says, See, I have given unto thine hand. See, by faith, he's telling him, and the king, and all their mighty men of valor. You just got to trust my strategy, is what he's telling them. So it wasn't going to happen in a day either, was it? Jericho was not going to be taken in a day. And there was a divine chain of command. God tells Joshua, and Joshua tells the people, and everyone has to do their part for it to work. All had to obey. And each day, here's men, armed men, marching around that city, followed by seven priests, blowing on these trumpets, a ram's horn. They don't sound real good. These aren't the long silver ones that had a nice sound. Thomas has got a ram's horn. They sound weird. They got blowing on seven of those. The Ark of the Covenant's following behind that, and then the rear guard's following the Ark. The march lasted an hour. They get done doing their hour-long march first day and they all just go back to camp and that's it and did that six days and nothing changed nothing changed now that would take great faith I think because on the first day I think the people of Jericho were probably scared to death they're like man this is weird what they're doing and we've heard of other things that's happened with this Ark of the Covenant I don't know what's going on here but something's going to happen and nothing happens and the second day they had to go through the same thing and they're probably still probably a little nervous Hmm. But nothing happens then. I think by day three, they probably started getting a little cocky and probably started mocking the Jews, feeling pretty secure. And here's the funny thing is, Israel, they're probably yelling at him, saying things to him, mocking God, doing whatever. And you know what? Israel could not say a word back. Look in verse 10. And Joshua had commanded the people saying, you shall not shout nor make any noise with your voice. Neither shall any word proceed out of your mouth until the day I bid you shout, and then you shall shout. And I'm saying, that to me is probably the greatest miracle in the story. Two million Jews not talking. <laughs> I'm going to tell you how I know that. I got a full Jewish grandmother that had Jewish relatives and sisters and brothers over in New York. They would come visit my family in Columbus. And they would sit there and talk. I don't know if it was more because they were Jewish or because they were from New York, but they never stopped. None of them. They would all talk over each other and at the same time, and I mean, it was hilarious. And one time we, <laughs> we hit a tape recorder in the living room and recorded it <laughs> and took it home and just laughed listening to it. My family, my dad, it was pretty funny actually. But I'm saying here, they're commanded, they have to be silent. Why? Because God is at work. This is his battle, isn't it? That's why. He told them back in Exodus, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he shall show you today. The Lord shall fight for you and you shall hold your peace. Or other translations say the Lord shall fight for you while you keep silent. Just be quiet. Watch what God's going to do. Don't take any of the attention away from the ark. Look at the horns. All the attention is on that ark of the covenant because this is God's battle. Don't be distracting yourselves or anyone else from what's going to happen here. And finally, on the seventh day, Israel didn't have to march around just once for an hour, but seven times. And you think about it. What does that mean? If going around there once is an hour, guess what they're doing all day long for seven to eight hours, marching around that city over 20 miles. That's a lot of marching. 
And I'm sure the people in Jericho thought, this is crazy. They're having a party in there. They probably thought, the Jews have gone crazy. They were doing it once a day. Now they're doing it six times. As, as the day moved on, they're probably thinking, these people are nuts. What are they doing marching around this city? And the Jews had to be getting kind of thirsty after doing that all day long. Twelve times around, nothing's happened. It's kind of like naming the leper. Elijah says, you need to dip in that Jordan River seven times. He's like, I don't even want to go to the Jordan River and dip in it once. And his servants say, well, you know, if he asked you to do something hard, you'd have done that. You think you're so tough. Why can't you just do this? And he's like, well, okay. Just give it a chance, Naaman. So he dips himself down. The first time it comes back up, every sore is still on his body. He could see that. Nothing changed. And the second time, and the third time, he's still looking at all this leprosy. I mean, he's probably thinking, I thought something might have happened by now. All the way up until the seventh time, and then suddenly, the seventh time, because his faith was tested and his obedience, suddenly it says his skin, he looks, wow, it's like a baby skin. And it says he's totally clean. But it wasn't going to happen if he'd have stopped sooner than that, would it have? So 12 times Jericho circled by Israel, nothing changed. But on the 13th time, a miracle takes place. The 13th time. Six days once and seven times, and on the 13th time, a miracle happens, and those walls fell flat, just like God had promised. But they had to do things exactly by his strategy and not by theirs. And when they obeyed his strategy, things worked. And there's another great principle we're learning here, and that is quiet perseverance and trust in God pays off, doesn't it? Because Jericho didn't fall in a day. It didn't fall in two days or three days or four days, did it? They had to persevere in their faith. It fell in God's time and in God's way. And if you go back and read the account, they had no idea when it was going to happen. They didn't. They just had to keep obeying day by day what God had given them to do, walking by faith. So God's ways seem like foolishness to the world because they'll mock. They'll mock the ram's horns, marching around, the little gold box you all have. They would have made fun of all of that. It seems foolish. And so that's what we hear today, isn't it? Where's the wisdom in trusting God? Where's the wisdom in trusting God? You look foolish a lot of times. And 1 Corinthians 1.19 says, For it is written... I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and I will bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Amen? It's the way it is. And I'll tell you, prayer is God's great strategy and it has got to be seen for its importance. It's fundamental. So Peter in Acts 12, he was put in a fortress that was just as impossible to overcome as Jericho's walls. Probably the fortress Antonia. It was the Roman fortress. It was part of Herod's palace. There is no way anybody's getting out of there, and especially Peter. They got him in an inner cell. They've got guards at every door. They have him chained to two guards within the cell. It's, there is no way he's getting out of there. In the natural, escape was impossible. But God had a strategy, didn't he? And what was his strategy? Read Acts 12. All the church was praying fervently and nonstop. Without ceasing, it says. And you say, the world would look at that and say, we got our man, he's locked away in there. There's no way he's getting out of there. Well, what are you doing about it? We're praying. Only praying? Where's the Navy SEALs? God doesn't need the Navy SEALs. He sent what? What did Joshua have in front of him? Angel. Sent an angel. God sent an angel. Imagine. Angelic help was given to Peter just like Joshua. Do you think he would ever do that for you or me? He would if he needed to. I know he would. Is prayer foolishness? Is it? At one time, I couldn't walk. I was in a leg trial. I'm laying on my bed, not because I was tired, but just where I had to be. And I'm laying there praying. My landlord thought he saw Lisa drive down the driveway. Normally, I'd have been working, 
So he thought no one's in the house. He's sneaking in to look around. Opens the door, there I am laying on my bed. Well, Johnny, what are you doing here? Why aren't you working? Well, I'm in a bit of a trial with my leg. Oh, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? Well, I'm, what are you doing about it? I said, I prayed. You prayed. Is that all you're going to do? Uh, yes, sir. I'm gonna trust the Lord. He's going to heal me. That's how the conversation went, and he left. And you feel like an idiot. I did. I felt like an idiot. But I'm standing here. And God is faithful. Amen? So you want to see God's faithfulness, sometimes you've got to be an idiot. That's kind of the moral of the story, isn't it? So, you know, that's the question. How do you act your faith when you're trusting the Lord? I mean, God told them what to do. So you have to get your directions on God. And I'm saying he'll tell you what to do if you'll just wait on him and listen to his voice. And what he tells you may sound foolish to the world, and it may even sound foolish to you. So it's not always the same. Jesus didn't heal every blind person. He didn't heal every leper the same way because some of them, he touched them. Some of them, he spoke a word. One blind man, he anointed his eyes and said, you go across the city, no small thing, and wash. That's what he had to do. He had to do exactly what Jesus said. If he wanted to see 10 lepers, he didn't speak a word over them. He didn't touch them with compassion like he did in the one in Matthew 8. What did he tell them to do? told them, you act your faith. You go show yourself to the priest and start going there before you see any change at all. And it says, as they went, they were healed. Others were cleansed instantly. So when you hear somebody's testimony about how they acted their faith, what they did, no matter what it is, you might be headed down the wrong road. You don't copy what somebody else does. You know, Joshua didn't do that at every city he went to, did he? Compassion and March, the only place you read about that. They had to get God's direction. It was different. The way they took AI, you'll see, was completely different. One time I remember hearing a testimony. It was a great testimony. A woman was having severe hemorrhaging, severe bleeding, trust in the Lord. And the Lord spoke to her. He says, I want you to get up and I want you to run up and down the stairway. And she knew it was the Lord. It was in her. She knew it. She had faith for it. And the bleeding stopped. That was it. Somebody else heard that testimony going through the same trial, and I think, well, it worked for her, and they tried it, and it didn't stop. And it was a mess, because God may have told that person, I just want you to lay in bed for three days, and I'll heal you. So we've got to be able to hear the Lord. That's what it's all about, is being sensitive to the Lord, to learn to obey His voice. Us personally, our personal walk with the Lord. But He won't leave us where we don't know what to do. But faith will know what to do when it's faith. And like they always used to say, if you've got to ask questions, you aren't believing yet. It's got to be in your heart. Amen? Amen. And the last thing I want to look at here is the Lord gives the victory. He's the one, and we've already looked at this verse. We'll read it again, chapter 6, verse 2, and it says, And the Lord said unto Joshua, See, I have given into thine hand Jericho, and the king thereof, and the mighty men of valor. So here's the third principle we're going to learn from Jericho is God gives the victory. Isn't that what we see before the battle begins? And that's critical. He gives the victory before the battle begins. 1 Corinthians 15, 57 says, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. So God gives us the victory before the battle begins. So we're fighting as we've heard so many times, but it's easy to forget it. It's easy to not pay attention but we're fighting from a place of victory. We're not fighting for victory. Amen? That's the way it is. Not trying to gain it. It's like Callie had that dream. I don't know if I got it exactly right, but basically, though, if she didn't have that assurance that you're going to win, she'd have quit in the dream. I would have quit. But the fact that you know, no matter how bad this is, I can't see where I'm going, stumbling around, running into trees falling down, whatever you would be doing. But if you know in your heart, all the, despite all that has happened, God has given me the assurance, I will win. Amen. You'd endure all of it, wouldn't you? That's right. I would. I'd endure anything. You know, when you know it in your heart, you've got the victory. It doesn't matter what it takes to get to that victory. You'll do it. And that's what is going on here with Joshua. So what assured them of the victory? What is the focus of chapter 6? the same focus that we had back in chapter 3. 
ten times. It speaks in this chapter of the ark of God. Look in verses 11 to 13. Look what it says. So the ark of the Lord compassed the city going about at once, and they came into the camp and lodged in the camp. And Joshua rose up early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And seven priests bearing seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord went on continually and blew with the trumpets, and the armed men went before them. But the re-reward came after the ark of the Lord, the priests going on and blowing with the trumpets. So the ark, we've said, it represents the presence of God. And so the emphasis in this story is not about the people marching around. They aren't the focus. The focus is the ark of God, the presence of God, with the trumpets blowing all around it. It's God who is encompassing the city. That's what's critical. He is the one that's marching around Jericho supernaturally, wrapping an invisible band every time they go around that thing, around that city. And when the day comes, seven day comes, tightens that band up, bam, it all falls down. However all that works. He might have been putting angels in place all around that city each time they made a trip around there with supernatural sledgehammers. I don't know. You know, however they did that. The point is, the weapons used to take those walls down were what? Supernatural, through the power of God's presence, the ark. And I think that's what Paul is referring to in 2 Corinthians 10.4 when he wrote this, For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or fleshly, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And a stronghold, that word is a fortress, a strong military installation like Jericho. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. And so the weapons God gives us are supernatural, aren't they? They're not fleshly, but mighty through God. And what are our weapons? You know, you've heard sermons on this, but it's prayer, the word of God, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, supernatural weapons. So who fought the battle of Jericho? The song says Joshua did. Was it Joshua? Was it Israel? It was only God who could have given the victory. He alone is the only one that could have done it. And because of that, you know what? He alone deserved the glory for it. And look in verse 16. It says this, And it came to pass at the seventh time when the priests blew with the trumpets, Joshua said unto the people, Shout, why? For the Lord, not their shout, the Lord has given you the city. The shout did nothing except through the power of God. You know how we know that? Because when they brought the ark in 1 Samuel, when the Philistines were attacking, they brought the ark in and they're thinking that's somehow just some kind of like a little magic thing they can rub on. And it said they shouted, Israel shouted when the ark was brought into the camp, shouted so loud it said the earth shook. So if it's the shout and the ark, I mean that should have been victory, wasn't it? But it wasn't. Instead, they got totally defeated and the ark was taken away and it was called Ichabod. Why? Because they said the glory has departed. The ark represented the glory of God. He had left them. So their shouting doesn't amount to a hill of beans without that ark. It's the ark that gave them the victory. And so that's why he's saying, I want all the spoils. You burn everything. But God said, I'm getting all the glory for this one. All the silver and the gold are mine. Because I'm getting the first fruits because this is my victory. Now later on, he said, all right, you all can have some of the spoils you needed to live on. But he's getting all of this. You burn everything else. It's all dedicated to me. And I want it burnt. And the women, children, animals, everything slain. And that's why Achan's sin was so serious. Because what's he doing? He is robbing God of his glory. Taking that gold. And he was warned, don't take of the accursed thing. Don't take of the gold. Don't take of anything. That Babylonian garment, you weren't, that was supposed to be burned. So we've got to be careful never to steal from God's glory. We pray and we trust the Lord and we see him faithful. We need to make sure that he is the one that's getting the glory because there's nothing we could have done if that's the case. It's all God, isn't it? It's all him. It's all his power. So what does all this tell us today? what we've talked about. 
The thing is, we are all going to face Jerichos, and some people in here are facing them today, a situation that seems impossible. That is the Christian life. The Christian life is facing Jerichos and spiritual warfare, trusting God that he is going to guide our warfare and supernaturally bless our efforts when we obey him and what he shows us to do. That's what the Christian life is all about. And so as we face our Jerichos or are facing them, we can be confident of what? That God has already given us the victory. So we just have to submit to the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, the captain of the Lord of hosts. And when we do that, he has pledged all of heaven's resources will be there to give us that victory. He's pledged that. John 15, 7, he says, if you abide in me, that's that submission, and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. That's what he's saying there. You abide in me. Surrender yourself to me. Let my word be abiding in you, giving you direction. And he says, whatever you ask, whatever you need to do my will, to be obedient to me, to do what I'm asking you to do, he says, I'll give it unto you. That's what he says. Ask what you will, and it shall be done. That's an encouragement right there. It shall be done unto you. And so that's the key. Not asking God to submit to our plans, but we must bow in the dust before him, submitting to his plans, willing to do his will. What saith my Lord to his servant? That's got to be our attitude. Not looking for spoils, but humbly waiting at his feet. And when we do that, God says, I'll bring all of heaven to your aid. That's what he says. Luke 18, and we'll end with this. He says, shall not God avenge his own elect? which cried day and night unto him, though he bear long with them. He says, I tell you, Jesus says, that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, shall he find faith on the earth? We have to ask ourselves that. Will he find faith in us when he comes back? Obedient faith. That's what we see here with Joshua. And that's what he's looking for. People that are going to stay true to him and willing to look foolish and experience his faithfulness and his power. Amen? Amen. All right, let's pray. And Father, we thank you once again, Lord, for the word that you've given us and this revelation of yourself and that you, Lord, are the captain of our salvation. And if we will submit and follow you and humbly let you lead and guide us, we can trust in you for whatever we need to follow in your steps, that your power will be there, your grace, you'll send angels to help us. Whatever's necessary, you've pledged yourself to do that, Father. And we just ask that you'll help us to learn to listen to your voice, listen to your direction, to have obedient hearts. And then, Lord, when you give us the victory, to give all the praise and glory and honor back to you, for you deserve it. I just ask you'll teach these truths to us today and help us to remember them in the days to come and to live them, Lord, to put them into practice. And I thank you that you'll do that for us in Jesus' name. Amen.